0: Chapter 7 of the Complete Works of Brand the Iconoclast, Volume 1, by William Cowper Brand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter 7 Christian England in India her tears anent turkish atrocities christian england is agonizing over the pitiful condition of the armenians under moslem rule but has nothing to say anent her own awful record in india it were well for john bull to get the beam out of his own eye before making frantic swipes at the mote in the optic of the moslem the oppression of the children of israel by the egyptian pharaohs the babylonian king and roman emperors were as nothing compared to that suffered by the patient bengalese at the hands of great britain the history of every barbarous prince of the orient in those dark days when might made right and plunder was a recognized prerogative of royalty the annals of every potentate who has reigned by the grace of allah and kneeled to kiss the robe of the prophet may be searched in vain for a parallel in unbounded rapacity and calculating atrocity england's despoilment of india constitutes the supreme crime of all the ages the acknowledged acme of infamy Europe never dreaded Alaric the Visigoth, nor hated Attila, the scourge of God, as India dreads and detests John Bull, the white beast from over the black water. He has not persecuted because of difference of religious dogma, as have the Mohammedan sultans and the Christian czars. That kind of enterprise doesn't pay, and John Bull never wastes on theological sentiment one ounce of energy that can be coined into cash a british trading company had leased land at madras and calcutta for which it paid rent to the native powers for the protection of its warehouses it was permitted to build forts and keep a few armed police but was in no sense independent its position in india was analogous to that of british capitalists in america who are operating a mine or a factory and have been authorized to police their property the mighty house of tamerlane had become a political non-entity the empire of the great mogul was divided among nominal viceroys who were really independent sovereigns gorgeous but indolent the teeming millions of india were for the most part as unfitted by nature and occupation for the fatigues of war as were the countless hosts which xerxes led into greece or darius hurled upon the steel-crested phalanxes of that bloody prototype of john bull alexander the macedonian marauder the governments of india were showy rather than strong and a condition of semi-anarchy had been engendered by the frequent incursions of fierce tribes of robbers the jealousies and ambitions of rival nabobs and the mischievous schemes of the french adventurer named duplex the company continued to augment its forces until strong enough not only to protect its own property but to overawe the native governments then on one dishonest pretext or another it began the work of transforming india into a british province robert clive succeeded in accomplishing in asia what dr jameson attempted with far better excuse in south africa Rival powers applied to the company for assistance, and it mattered not with which it allied itself. Both were in the end destroyed or enslaved, compelled to pour their wealth into the coffers of the British corporations. No crime was too horrible, no breach of faith too brazen, if it promised to further the ambition and increase the gains of the company. Its policy was to unite with a weak government, to plunder a strong one, then by subjugating its ally— to make itself master of both by treasons and stratagems by forged treaties and briberies by infamies planned in cold blood and executed with more than kurdish barbarity the garden spot of the earth with its teeming millions and inestimable wealth was made to pay tribute to british greed Macaulay, the eulogist of both lord clive and warren hastings thus describes india when great britain without a shadow of excuse laid her marauding paw upon it in the same manner and for the selfsame purpose that cortez invaded the halls of the montezumas quoting Macaulay, the people of india when we subdued them were ten times as numerous as the vanquished americans the indian subjects of montezuma and were at the same time quite as highly civilized as the victorious spaniards they had reared cities larger and fairer than saragossa or toledo and buildings more beautiful and costly than the cathedrals of seville they could show bankers richer than the richest firms of barcelona or cadiz viceroys whose splendors far surpassed that of ferdinand the catholic myriads of cavalry and long trains of artillery which would have astonished the great captain it might have been expected that every englishman who takes any interest in any part of history would be curious to know how a handful of their countrymen separated from their home by an immense ocean subjugated in the course of a few years one of the greatest empires of the world yet unless we greatly err this subject is to most readers not only insipid but positively distasteful good god is it any wonder that british readers should find the conquest of india positively distasteful is it not quite natural that englishmen had rather read of turkish atrocities in armenia than of british atrocities in india Lord Macaulay rehearses all the treacheries and cruelties and double dealings by which a handful of his countrymen subjugated one of the greatest empires of the world, then complains that British readers find such a catalogue of horrors positively distasteful. Did he expect even Englishmen to become enthusiastic over the hiring of British troops to the infamous Surajah Dowlah for the massacre of the brave Rohilas? Did he expect them to peruse with pleasurable pride the robbery of the princesses of Ud, the brutal execution of Nunkamar, or the forged treaty by which Armishund was entrapped? Having painted the atrocities and craven cowardice of Chief Justice Impey, could he reasonably expect them to be proud of this representative Englishman in India?' Having told us that Lord Clive was a freebooter in his boyhood, and a butcher in his prime, did he anticipate that even Englishmen would be proud of this countryman, of theirs, who founded the British Empire in India? Lord Macaulay gives us the following description of conditions in Bengal under British domination, then wonders that his countrymen find its perusal positively distasteful. Quote, They, the servants of the East India Company, covered with their protection a set of native dependents who ranged through the provinces, spreading desolation and terror wherever they appeared. Every servant of a British factor was armed with all the power of his master, and his master was armed with all the power of the company. Enormous fortunes were thus accumulated at Calcutta, while thirty millions of human beings were reduced to the last extremity of wretchedness they had been accustomed to live under tyranny but never tyranny like this they found the little finger of the company thicker than the loins of the surajah Dowlah. it resembled the government of evil genie rather than the government of human tyrants the people of india it must be remembered had experienced the tyranny of the brahmin and buddhist of moslem and even the terrible Maratha. They had groaned beneath the exactions of the great moguls, plundering viceroys and robber-chiefs. They had paid tribute to Aurangzeba and to Hyder Ali, but here we are told they never experienced such tyranny and pitiless despoilation as under the rule of Christian England, and this upon the testimony of an Englishman. Now that British preachers and pamphleteers are agonizing over Mohammedan atrocities in Armenia, let us see what the latter thought of Christian domination in India. If, says the Mussulman historian of those unhappy times, if to so many military qualifications they English knew how to join the art of government. If they exerted as much ingenuity and solicitude in relieving the people of God, as they do in whatever concerns their military affairs, no nation in the world would be preferable to them or worthier of command. But the people under their dominion groan everywhere, and are reduced to poverty and distress. O God, come to the assistance of thine afflicted servants, and deliver them from the oppressions they suffer." lord clive having acquired an immense fortune concluded to round out his political career by inaugurating a reform that would in some manner atone for his past excesses, and did succeed in giving india more than a roman peace and abating some of the worst abuses but the reform was ephemeral In his essay on Warren Hastings, Lord Macaulay, who wonders that the conquest of India is distasteful reading to Englishmen, gives us the following pen-picture of conditions under the administration of his ideal, The delay and the expense, grievous as they are, form the smallest part of the evil which English law, imported without modifications into India, could not fail to produce. The strongest feelings of our nation—honor, religion, female modesty—rose up against the innovation. Arrest on mean process was the first step in most civil proceedings, and to a native of rank arrest was not merely a restraint, but a foul personal indignity. That the apartments of a woman of quality should be entered by strange men, or that her face should be seen by them, are in the East intolerable outrages. Outrages which are more dreaded than death and which can be expiated only by the shedding of blood to these outrages the most distinguished families of bengal Bihar, and orissa were now exposed a reign of terror began a reign of terror heightened by mystery no man knew what was next to be expected from this strange tribunal it had collected round itself an army of the worst part of the native population informers and false witnesses and common barrators and agents of chicane and above all a banditti of bailiffs followers compared with whom the retainers of the worst english sprung houses in the worst times might be considered as upright and tender-hearted there were instances in which men of the most venerable dignity persecuted without cause by extortioners died of rage and shame in the grip of the vile alguazils of impay the harems of noble mohammedans sanctuaries respected in the east by governments that respected nothing else were burst open by gangs of bailiffs the muslims braver and less accustomed to submission than the hindus sometimes stood on their defence and shed their blood in the doorway while defending sword in hand at the sacred apartments of their women no Maratha invasion had ever spread through the province such dismay as the inroad of english lawyers all the injustice of former oppressions asiatic and european appeared as a blessing when compared with the justice of the supreme court End quote no wonder that christian england is horrified by the atrocities of the moslems in armenia she cannot understand persecution for the sake of religious opinion having done her dirty work for the sake of the almighty dollar it is true that a hastings with his forged treaties and despoilment of ancient bee gums, is no longer governor-general of india it is true that an impey no longer deals out justice in that unhappy land but the industrial condition of the toiling millions is worse today than when they were being despoiled to erect the peacock throne at delhi adorned with its mountain of light sir david Wedderbun, who will be accepted as authority even by our anglo says quote, our civil courts are regarded as institutions for enabling the rich to grind the faces of the poor and many are fain to seek a refuge from their jurisdiction in native territory and a quote from florence nightingale we do not care for the people of india the saddest sight to be seen in india nay probably in the world is the peasant of our eastern empire miss nightingale declares that the indian famines which every few years cost millions of lives are due to british taxation which deprives the riots of the means of cultivation and reduces them to a condition far worse than the worst phases of american slavery mr h m hindman an english writer of repute declares that in india men and women cannot get food because they cannot save money to buy it so terrible are the burdens laid by christian england on that unhappy people just as Ireland exported food to England during her most devastating famines, so does India send food to the mother country in the discharge of governmental burdens, while her own people are starving by millions. Henry George, who has never been suspected of anti-English tendencies, says: quote, The millions of India have bowed their necks beneath the yokes of many conquerors, but worst of all is the steady, grinding weight of english domination a weight which is literally crushing millions out of existence and as shown by english writers is inevitably tending to the most frightful and widespread catastrophe christian england wouldn't murder a Muslim because of his religion she's too good for that but she starves millions to death to fill her purse then tries to square herself with god and man by singing psalms and pointing the finger of scorn at the barbarities of islam End of chapter seven christian england and india